want to give a special welcome to uh, our guests this morning. We're so thankful that you are here and that God has uh, brought you to worship with this congregation uh, today. We have been going through the book of 1 Peter, which has been a glorious book written to a church who is in exile. And Peter has been writing and highlighting all that God is through his grace and through his work. And he has called us to uh, eternal life in Christ. And he has shown us that true hope is not found in this world. It's not found by the way that people treat us in this world, but it's found in Christ Jesus. And so Christians have a unique hope even while we are in exile. And so we welcome you to this study as we've been in it all summer long. We do preach expositorily. Uh, through books of the Bible, meaning we simply want to open up the Word of God and explain it through the Spirit of God the best we can so that the Word of God, because we believe the Word of God, actually does work on our hearts and our lives far better than any man or woman in this congregation could do with our own words. And so we do uh, uh, want to preach expositorily through each book that is given to us today. And how we live in this life is informed by Christ's grace. He has purchased us both for salvation and for our sanctification through his precious blood. And he has given us a future hope that is founded in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we as a church family are holding to these things today. Trusting that no matter what is going on in your life... These pillars, these anchors of truth ground us and remind us of what is good and true and glorious. And the suffering that we walk through in this life pales into comparison to the future glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. And so we have hope today, despite where we find ourselves. And where we find ourselves is actually found in verse 7. The end of all things, Peter says, and this kind of serves as a launching pad for the rest uh, of this little section of scripture that we're going to look at today. Peter writes, the end of all things is at hand. And when he says this, the end of everything is near, Peter is saying that Christ's return is imminent. Remember, Peter saw with his own eyes Christ ascend from the Mount of Olives. And he heard with his own ears from the angel's lips that the Son of Man will return in the same way one day. And because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter is now living his whole life by the promises that are attached to it. And so we see him ministering to the church based on these truths. Because God has brought him out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And he has done the same thing for his people who have been redeemed by him. That little word there, end, or telos, means the goal or the aim of it all is near. Now, this was written 2,000 years ago, but it is still true. The end is, in fact, near. And what is the aim of all of redemption history, or what is the aim of Christ's return? Well, it's the fact that he is going to have everlasting rule forever and ever. 
And so there's a hope that Peter writes with, and there's a hope to which we receive today through his preached word. The gospel of Christ isn't a Sunday thing. It's not a small group thing. The glory of Christ touches every single aspect of our lives, and that is exactly what Peter is pushing in to the people of God through this letter. It governs all of what we do and how we think. Now, oftentimes, as one scholar reminded me this week, the end of the world kind of puts society in hysteria. You've seen the pictures where uh, crazy guys are hanging, uh, holding up signs and saying the end of the world is at hand, and it's kind of a fear-based feeling when we see that in society. But, but for the Christian, there is true hope. For the Christian, our joy is rooted in the fact that Christ will return and that the end of all things is near. And here's how we can say this with confidence. God has already created. The fall of man has already happened. Abraham's call and covenant to be the father of many nations has already been promised. And then the ultimate reality of that promise, who is Christ the Messiah, has come. He's been born. He lived a perfect life. He died. He was buried. He raised from the dead, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And then the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church for his people to be gathered in the name of Christ, and the promise that remains is Christ's return. And so that is the launching point of what he's getting into, uh, what is really actually a very practical sermon. When he says the end of all things, we, we see these four exhortations or these four applications that roll from it today. Where the, uh, it kind of marks us as a people to live an alternative community within society. And so these exhortations are meant for us to live as heavenly representatives here on the earth. And this is our aim here at First Irving. We want to be what is described here in the scriptures. Now, the main idea that is going to kind of drive our time today is simply this. Because the end is near, be urgent to live for the glory of God. Because the end is near, be urgent to live for the glory of God. So we're going to kind of unpack what it looks like to live for the glory of God today. And the first exhortation is found in verse 7. Think rightly so you can pray rightly. Look what it says in verse 7. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. As heaven gets near, think rightly, is what Peter's saying, as you journey on this path. So, so based on the return of Christ, we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded. It means we are to have a clear mind and not one that is distracted by the world's affairs or the world's temptations. Elsewhere in this letter, we see Peter uh, says to be sober-minded in chapter 1, verse 13, preparing your mind for action, setting your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. In a few weeks, in chapter 5, he's going to tell us, be sober-minded and watchful, for the devil prowls like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You might think that he's telling the church to be sober-minded so that they can give a faithful defense with their tongue about what the gospel, gospel is, but notice what he says in the text. 
He's saying, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Another way to say it is, gird up the loins of your mind so that you think rightly and so therefore that you pray rightly. We've already seen in chapter 3, verse 7, when he's talking to husbands, that an unfaithful life can actually affect prayers. And, And notice here in the text, it says prayers, which suggests plural prayers, prayers throughout the day, prayers uh, that we uh, usher up like we do breathing throughout the course of the day, fully depending upon God. This is the life of the Christian that he is explaining. You could look at it this way. If you do not gird up the loins of your mind, if you do not have a sober mind, how easy will it be for you to, re- to, to, re- uh, to lose your hope that he's talking about in chapter 1? Or how easy will it be for us to fall into the deceptions that Satan gives to our souls each and every single day? We are called to be sober-minded when it comes to the word of God. And this is how he's pushing it so that they remember how to be faithful in this life. So a natural question pops up for us. What lures your mind away from being sober to the thoughts of God, to the gospel? Uh, Is it drugs? Is it alcohol? Are the things that you run to to find ecstasy or joy? Uh, are, they, are they less dramatic things like simply just, just scrolling on your screen mindlessly throughout the course of the day, trying to find some glimmer of joy and hope? What is it that robs you of a sober mind in Christ? I would imagine the applications that could be brought to this text are as numerous as the people in this room. So ask yourself in your heart, what lures you away from soberness to God? Because what you put into your mind will come out of your lips and your actions because it affects your heart. So we have a calling to be sober-minded. So put the word of God in your mind and be renewed by it, like it talks about in Romans chapter 12, so that we may pray rightly. There's several things that we can pray for rightly. A lot of those are listed in the text below. The second thing we're going to look at is simply this. One of the things that we can pray for rightly is that we would love one another earnestly above all else, which Peter is pushing here. Look with me in verse 8. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. He's saying above all else, keep loving each other. We recognize, everybody in this room, that we can grow weary of loving each other, right? We're family members, so the answer is yes. Sometimes we inconvenience each other, sometimes we're tired, sometimes we are suffering, and to love is a very difficult thing. But he's saying, because the end is near, we are called to love each other, and look how he describes this love. He says, earnestly. Earnestly, that word earnestly means uh, stretch yourself out. It might be painful, it might be laborious, but in the end times, we need to love each other in this way because the gospel is at stake. If you remember Jesus' words in John chapter 13, 35, he says that the world will know that we are his disciples based on how we love one another. 
And Peter heard that instruction from his own lips, and he's regurgitating it here to these churches. Now, what is the reason for this earnest love? Well, it's actually mentioned. Peter says it covers a multitude of sins. Now, here he's pulling from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. That's what Proverbs 10 says. What does Peter mean that love uh, covers a multitude of sins? Isn't the blood of Christ the only thing that can actually cover sins? And the answer, of course, is yes. So, so Peter must mean something else. Here he means that love covers up offenses that will inevitably occur within the body of Christ. Beloved, as Peter has already, already said in this book, sin ravages the community. It hurts the community in a great way. Look back in chapter 2, verse 1. This is what he says. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Put these things away. These things destroy the church. That what he, that's what he's saying. But earnest love is what builds the church together. And specifically, since they cover sins, he's talking about forgiveness. He's talking about care and patience. How love manifests itself within relationships with one another so as to restore and grow the body in a healthy way. Love builds up trust within the community and a more meaningful deeper understanding of what the gospel is, what the love of Christ is. And beloved, this only incurs in minds that have received and experienced the love of Christ for oneself. When you have received the love of Christ, when you have put your faith and trust in that beautiful cornerstone, you know then what love is, and we can begin to display it one to another. Now, we see this uh, work in the scriptures, and it's not an easy work. Uh, an example that comes to mind is James chapter 5, when he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The church is to engage one another. It's what's required in love. And if we're going to cover a multitude of sins, we must actually engage when sin occurs. As, as quick as a sin occurs, we want to be as quick to forgive and to encourage repentance within the body of Christ. In fact, here's what I would tell you. Avoiding sin and not dealing with sin in the body of Christ is not love. And we are to be earnest in how we care for one another and display the love of Christ to one another. Now, to, to overlook an offense or to offer forgiveness is not easy in the flesh. In fact, I would, I would argue that it's profoundly impossible. But it is possible by the, by the Spirit. It's an intentional work to move towards each other in this way. It's not some lazy acquittal of our weaknesses. 
It's an active engagement to love and push one another towards the knowledge of Christ so that we can enjoy the richness of Christ together in community. Peter is not saying that sin is not a big deal. Uh, He's not saying that we should push sin under the rug. He's not saying that discipline at times is not necessary. What he's saying is that no matter the offense, we forgive and seek to cover our brothers and sisters with forgiveness and the reminder of the gospel of Christ. And the kickback is for us that we can be assured that when we are sin, our brothers and our sisters will do the very same in us. If you remember from Matthew chapter 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant, one servant is forgiven by a master, by his master, an eternal payment that he'll never be able to repay. But he is unable to forgive one of his servants uh, just a few days' wages. For those of us who have received the forgiveness of Christ, a payment that we cannot repay should be quick to offer forgiveness in the name of Christ. As it says in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, that love keeps no records of right, or or excuse me, keeps no records of wrong. That would be a huge difference. (laughs) Now, to college students that are here, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you, if you are a member here, to give yourself to this as you come back to this body of Christ. It's so good to see several of your faces that we've missed over the summer. Uh, we, uh, you, you help complete us as the body of Christ, and I, I want you to know that. Uh, if you are new or if you're visiting, uh, our encouragement to you, if we only have one time with you, we want you to know how important it is to find a church that is preaching the whole counsel of God and is earnestly trying to practice this love in community. Because it's real easy to find a church and to get swept up in programs, to get swept up in and not being known. And we believe this is God's design for the church. And so our encouragement for you today, for those who are visiting or those who are curious, whatever church you find, allow those th- two things to guard or to guide how you make decisions. Now, one way we can display this love, one practical way is actually expressed in the third point, uh, which you can look with me there in verse 9. The third point is to be hospitable to one another without complaining. This is a way we can love one another. To show hospitality with no complaint. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling, the text says. What is hospitality? And how do we practice it without complaining? Well, when the Bible talks about hospitality, it's referring to love and affection for a stranger. And here it specifically says for one another. So we have to believe that it's talking about Christians in the body of Christ that we might not know yet. There's a hospitality that is to be displayed from this. And this doesn't uh, suggest that we just have each other own over for the sake of entertainment purposes. But rather we have each other over and we show hospitality to serve and to meet specific needs that are risen up in our lives. Whether it be soul carrying and uh, making sure that we bear one another's burdens 
or if it's practical needs that arise in the body. That's the idea that he's getting at here uh, in this context. He's urging them to host Christians that they may not know. There's not exactly a ton of hotels in, moder- or in uh, historic Turkey back then. And so he's saying, open up your homes, let people in. And then we're to host people without complaining. So, so Peter says that because he gets that our natural bent is to complain. It's to murmur. It's to send an invitation and then to say, I wish we didn't do that. Naturally. And he's saying, open up your home for hospitality and don't complain without grumbling. This means that you do this willingly. Uh, You do it to inconvenience yourself. You let your schedule get blown up so that you can meet the needs of your brothers and sisters that arise within the body of Christ. And we can do this because our ultimate joy is not in our own rhythm of life, but it's in God himself. And so God himself is the motivation of this. We we see this throughout the scriptures. Luke 14 comes to mind. Jesus says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Why? Because they cannot repay you. There is no kickback when we show hospitality. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That's what Jesus says. Beloved older saints in this church, let's say 40 and up, a great opportunity to show hospitality is to take one of these college students to lunch today because they cannot repay you. (laughs) We also see in scripture another motivation for hospitality. Hebrews 13, chapter 2, unlikely visitors do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. We are motivated by God, not what it does for us in this world. And if I could just maybe push in just a little bit here, we need to be aware of an idol of the heart, the idol of comfort, a deep idol that is seated probably within all of us or most of us in this life. It's, it's not as easily observed as other idols that we see in this life. Uh, idols like the vanity of appearance. Idols like treating your work like a mistress uh, against your family. Or, or the idol of collecting a lot of things that you try to find joy in. No, the idol of comfort is much sneakier. It, it, it's much more hidden. It's produced by a heart that longs for an easy life. It fights for privacy. It demands personal freedoms. It operates by control, controlling situations. You are being demanded of and asked for and you don't like it. That's your greatest fear. And you might be near people, but their needs are not being met. But for the brother and sister who have an inheritance in heaven, you are called to maximize your efforts here on this earth for his glory and not your comfort. Do not be deceived into believing we are settlers in this land. Rather, we are pilgrims on a path. And that is how we walk in this life. And and let God himself be our motivation. Is it not God who has taught us hospitality? Has he not hosted us in his creation? 
Has he not fed us from his garden and has he not fed us outside of his garden? Did he not give Israel all the promises while sustaining them in the desert with manna? Did he not give them a country to reside in, a city to build, a temple to worship in? Did he not send his Christ to us to wash our dirty feet? And even more than that, wash our filthy hearts? Does he uh, not let us sit at his table once a month as we partake in the Lord's table? This is hospitality. God, our God, a God of hospitality. Is he not preparing for all of us a place for us to dwell with him forever? Did he not host our sins in his body on the tree as he bore the wrath of God for what we deserved? He's also our example of how to be hosted, is he not? Christ needed a body to host him and he called a servant girl to host him. The humility of Christ to be hosted by Mary and and even more to be hosted by the flesh. Did he not design a manger, an animal's trough to be his first bed? Did he not let the great sinner Zacchaeus uh, invite him into his house to feed him? Did he not recline at table with sinners? Did he not let the tomb allow his body to rest before he raised three days later? Our God knows so much about hospitality. And the more we know about our God of hospitality, we will know about hospitality itself. So let Christ's love and hospitality move us. It's like our fuel for doing good. And remember, the Spirit reminds us of these things. That's what it says in John 14. The Spirit reminds us of all that Christ has said and what we're called to do. And we're called to do good works. That's the book of 1 Peter has said that, I think I've counted seven different times. And one of the examples of doing good is being hospitable. We see at the kind of the book, the starting book marker of this section of Scripture in verse 12 of chapter 2. That the world initially calls us evildoers because we're not participating in their works. But, but when we bear in doing good and we display earnest love and we do it without complaining and we host people uh, without grumbling, ultimately, these are the people that glorify, they glorify God on the day of vegetation because of the good works that we display which is the very reason that God has made us a a, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And I I get that hospitality takes time, it takes money, it's not always easy, it requires us to be intentional, we're not allowed to be here we are people, we have to be there you are people, and that's the kind of people we want to be because that's the kind of Christ we serve. That's the kind of Christ we have been served by. And then lastly, Peter goes even more specific into his exhortation to display love by talking about the gifts that we have each received, which which is the fourth point. Because the end is at hand, serve one another by stewarding your gift from God. Verse 10 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Otherwise, so so because the end is near, be sober-minded, pray rightly, 
Love each other earnestly. Open your hearts and homes to each other and do it without complaining and steward the gifts that God has given you so as to minister to others who are hurting and need to be served with the grace of Christ. And ultimately, as we step back from this passage and we, and we see the purpose of it all, so that the Gentiles, the lost people of the world may see that we are a different community, a heavenly community. Now, Peter certainly could have in mind the gifts that are mentioned, the longer list in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Romans, Romans 12 as well. But this passage kind of summarizes what the gifts are. And, and notice that little word there, each Each of us have a gift, and each of us are called to steward the gift by serving one another with the gift that God supplies. So simply put, God gives us a specific gift to steward for other people to grow in God's grace. I want that to sink in. You've been given a gift from the Lord so that your brother would be served by it. Uh, And each suggests kind of a uniqueness. It's different. I've got an incredible dad. My dad is an encourager. And I've heard heard so many people said, man, your dad's an encourager like Barnabas. But he's not Barnabas. And he doesn't encourage the same way that Barnabas does. He is a, a son of encouragement, no doubt, but God has uniquely gifted him to serve the people that my dad has knitted to in community, or he's, who he's knitted to with in community. So maybe a proper question to ask for us is, how has God used you to encourage the spiritual growth of other people? I think what Peter's getting at here is that we have a responsibility to discover what it is that stirs other people's affections for Christ. Now, I'm not talking about a spiritual uh, gift test here. You know, I think I was in the fourth grade when I took my first spiritual gifts test, and it said I was going to be, like, unbelievable with the uh, many gifts of language, and I'm not. (laughs) So I can kind of manipulate the test to say whatever I want. So I think what we have to do is a little bit of trial and error to see how people are stirred up for the affections for Christ based on how we serve one, uh, serve them. I have been served by uh, sisters, I'm looking at right now, who have brought food to our home when we were suffering, and it, and it, and it propelled us to think rightly about the gospel. It took time and energy and money to come to our home to care for us. Uh, we're called to encourage how we see the gifts play out in each other's lives. That's how we know what it is that God has asked us to steward according to his varied grace. So it's pretty encouraging if we think about it, that God lavishes his grace on us through these gifts in order that we would serve one another. And if you think about it, these, these people are suffering for the name of Christ. They are exiled. They are not favored in society. And they're hearing, hey, I've given you enough. I've given you the gospel. I've given you each other. Serve one another with the gifts that I've given you as you minister God's ver- my very grace to you, even in time of exile. That is hope for us today, especially as the world gets a little bit hotter against Christians. 
But notice what these gifts are in verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, and whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So, so Peter provides two categories here. He provides uh, uh, words and deeds. Speaking the oracles of God is one set of gifts, and then serving with the strength that God supplies is the other set of gifts. So God uses his word and he uses his strength to mediate his own varied grace to one another. This is a lot of good hope for us that it's not dependent upon our skill sets. Um, now, of course, these overlap, right? Uh, when you speak the oracles of God, and the oracles of God are simply the sayings of God or the word of God. When you speak the word of God, uh, you're certainly serving the people. We're deaconing. We're serving the word of God to the people that you may be fed. And when you serve the practical needs of the saints as well, you, you no doubt use gracious language to one another. So there is overlap in these giftings, but they're specific giftings meant for specific purposes. But notice, I'm going to just plunge a little bit deeper. Notice what God supplies here. His very words. We don't use our thoughts to build the community. But his word, because his word builds up everlasting truth in our hearts. And his words are trustworthy. And when we minister his words to people, things begin to happen. Like Hebrews 4.11 says, his word discerns our crooked thoughts and intentions. His word breathes life into our dry bones and does not return void, as the prophets say. You can go this afternoon and look at Psalm 119 and just go down the list and see all that the word of God does to you. It leads to our joy in verse 2 of Psalm 119. It keeps us from sinning in verse 9. It guards us against self-centeredness in verse 36. It anchors us amidst the swirl of lies in this world that we are constantly bombarded with in verse 69. It provides us a picture of the character of God and the attributes of God, his faithfulness and his grace. Notice what also he supplies. He supplies strength for our serving. If we are serving each other in our own strength, it suggests that we are trying to secure a status in people's minds that we were never intended to receive. Ask him. Don't be vexed by serving in your own strength. It's a weary endeavor. Ask him for strength. And the God who hears our prayers is willing to give us what we ask for as we bear the name of Christ. Why do we rely on his word? Why do we rely on his strength? Because of the beautiful doxology that's found at the end of this passage. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Glory and dominion do not belong to us. It only belongs to Christ, whom he is speaking of. So why are we using God's word? Why are we reliant upon God's strength? 
Why are we loving God's people? Why are we called to steward God's gift of varied grace? In order that God would be glorified through Jesus Christ. That the glory of Christ would be on display within his people because he's the only one who is to receive glory and has power over dominion forever and ever. Amen. So God is glorified when we speak his word in love. So let the one who gives strength get the glory for giving the strength. Let the one who gave the words get glory because he gave the words. For those who are redeemed in Christ, we wouldn't know his words. We wouldn't have affection in our hearts. We wouldn't be given gifts to steward or rejoice in his varied grace together. But because we have been redeemed by Christ, our sins are forgiven. He has imputed to us his righteousness. There is an inheritance that awaits us that he's guarding for us. All because Christ died. He rose on the third day, ascended to the Father's side, and is coming again. And therefore we live for his glory. Therefore, when we gather in our small groups or in our discipleship groups... We minister God's words. We don't, we don't muster up our own thoughts. When, when we serve the different needs that arise in the body, we don't do it so people think well of us. We do it in God's strength and for his glory. What motivates why you do what you do in the body of Christ? Are you motivated by the very God that saved you and made you aware of who he is? Because if glory and dominion belong to him forever and ever, and glory doesn't belong to man, we need to steward what it is that God has given us, both for his glory and for each other's good. Very practical way. Just a few uh, ways for us to respond as we think about Christ's coming and the aim of our existence, which is the glory of God. The first response is simply this. Be in prayer about all of these things. For the text says that we are to steward the gifts that God has given to us. Lord, help me to serve your people with your grace. Lord, help me to have a sober mind. Uh, Lord, Lord, increase my earnest love for my brother or sister when it's difficult in my flesh. Lord, enlarge my understanding of hospitality so that I can enlarge my home to care for the needs of a brother or a sister. How different, and I'm just asking, how different would your ABF look or your community group look if you prayed for these things? Oftentimes we walk in casually to our classes. We, we, we check out what's going on in each other's life. We ask a few questions. We throw up casually a few prayer requests. We get to the lesson. We come to service, and then we do it all again the very next week. But what, what if we were stirred for the glory of God? What, what if we were, were so um, uh, living of, with an earnest love for one another that we were asking God to increase our love for one another? 
Not depending on proximity, but, but, but depending on need for, for the glory of God to be displayed and the character of God to be applied. What would that look like in your class? Because the urgency that's being described here in 1 Peter is profound. So, so compare it. Compare it to where the Lord has you dwelling and in the communities that you have that you're, you're dwelling in. Do you pray for these things? Are you thinking rightly so that you can pray rightly? Number two, be reminded every morning of God's grace to you in Christ. Delight in him. Delight in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Taste and see, as Peter has said, that the Lord is good. Steward God's word as you read it. Steward God's word as you listen to it. Actively listen to God's word going forward for your, for your own heart's sake. Any of us who are responsible for teaching, let us not veer off the path of speaking anything but God's word and trying to explain what God's word says, because we must be reminded of who God is and delight in him if we're going to pour out that delight on other people. Run to him. Run to the empty tomb like Peter did uh, on that faithful morning, that Sunday morning, to see that he is risen from the dead. Be reminded of the grace of God as you pour out the grace of God on other people. Number three, beware to use God's gifts for his glory. Uh, your brother's good and not yourself. Oftentimes we have a temptation to spend the gifts that God has given to us so that we look good in other people's eyes. And brothers and sisters, pastors have gotten in a lot of trouble for this. Uh, pride has revealed itself when, when we're thinking about more about ourselves. but we are to spend the gifts for his glory and for each other's good. But beware that there could be an idol in your heart that wants to make much of you and very little of God. And when we do this, we show more affection and more devotion to the gift rather than the giver, as Piper has said. And this is idolatry. And what it actually reveals is a deep love for the self. Be aware of your self-love. Turn from it. Turn to Christ. Receive uh, his mercy and grace by faith. And number four, be convinced that God's glory is our greatest joy. Be convinced that God's glory is our greatest joy. God alone heals us. God alone binds the wounds of our neighbor through his words and through his deeds as we steward this varied grace. God alone is the source of our ministry and purpose, and this is for our joy. This is for our good. The word has been given to us so that we would know these things and enjoy God who gives these things to us because he has given himself for our enjoyment. We, find, we try to find joy in so many other places, but the ultimate joy of our life is found fully and solely in God. If you're not a Christian, or, or if you're unsure today, I want you to know that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And that these, these applications that we're talking about in the church, this earnest love, this hospitality, this, this stewardship, 
is perfectly embodied by Christ because it shows the, the character of God himself. I want you to know that he alone perfectly loves specifically. And he demonstrated that at the cross when he bore his people's sins in his body, conquering death by raising from the dead. And then he empowers his people to walk in new life. In fact, we're about to celebrate that right now or here in a couple of minutes with a brother who is gonna display how the gospel has changed his life. And if you have not been changed by the gospel of Christ today, we pray that you hear these words and you'd be willing to talk to someone around you about the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we come before you thankful for your grace and your mercy. Thankful that you care for us and you love us and that you're patient with us and that you've been hospitable to us and that you have loved us with a deep earnestly, earnestness, perfectly, as Christ displayed a perfect life that we couldn't live and he died a death that we deserved and Father, he raised from the dead so as to reign supreme over all creation. And for those who trust in him, Father, we rejoice today that there is a future hope for us, a glory. Grow us in these ways, Father. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.